Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 131st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is using psychology to bond with consumers. I'm joined by Matt Johnson, PhD, who, along with Tessa G. Miasek, PhD, is the author of Branding That Means Business, How to Build Enduring Brands Between Bonds Between Brands, Consumers, and Markets. The publisher is Public Affairs. Matt is a speaker, a researcher, a writer, specializing in the application of psychology and neuroscience to marketing. He holds a PhD in cognitive psychology from Princeton University. Besides being the author of Blindside, he's also contributed to publications like Psychology Today, Forbes, and the BBC. He's also the co-founder of the neuromarketing firm Pop Neuro with teaching gigs at Holt International School of Business and Harvard University's Division of Continuing Education. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. I'm delighted you're here. Uh, let's get a quick summary of the book in. What's it about? Yes, yeah, so this book was uh, really motivated by the current context that brands find themselves in, where it's really no longer enough to have a stellar product. It's no longer enough to have an interesting, compelling brand personality. Uh, really, now more than ever, the brand really has to hold a special place in the minds and lives of consumers. They really have to go above and beyond. Um, there's so much immediate gratification at the fingertips of consumers now. You can shout to your Alexa and have any 
you know, any product delivered to your doorstep. You can go on Spotify, your favorite streaming service, and have any song uh, ever recorded in your uh, in your ears. Uh, so now, with uh, this sort of environment of immediate gratification, brands to really matter to consumers really have to carve out. A, a special place in the minds and lives of their constituents. And that's really what this book is about, really harnessing insights from psychology, neuroscience, sociology, anthropology, really the human sciences, uh, to be able to build these enduring bonds. Okay. So in both the introduction and the epilogue to your book, which I, I have read in preparation for the show, um, you mentioned the fundamentals of human nature and the need to best harness them. Uh, from a branding point of view, what are we talking about? What fundamentals of human nature have seemed most uh, essential to you to be uh, considering? So this is a really perennial feature of any business. So businesses are, are thoroughly in the business of trying to predict the future, trying to understand the future, trying to imagine what the world is going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and really how they can put themselves in a situation where they can be successful in this hypothetical environment. And I think this is no doubt a, uh, an important pursuit. And to this end, uh, businesses invest in analytics and trend spotting and all sorts of means of, of directly predicting what's going to happen. Um, so again, I think this is, is a noble pursuit. In the book, we make a, a different and, and I think complementary argument, which is instead of asking what's going to change, instead asking what's going to stay constant. And especially for brands, for companies that are uh, dealing with people, they're B2C companies, uh, really the most relevant fundamentals here are the, are the fundamentals of human nature. And of course, us as human beings, we don't admit to any uh, sort of straightforward uh, summaries. We're, we're sort of these strange, quirky, uh, hypocritical, contradictory, multifaceted uh, creatures. Um, but nonetheless, by taking a uh, sort of a human nature-based approach here, uh, brands and organizations can tether themselves to these fundamentals. So clearly, uh, psychology, sort of the, the psychological sciences are really crucial here. Uh, there are some sort of deep human fundamentals, which are universal. Uh, but of course, as a human species, we vary so much by culture. We vary so much in terms of of timing and, and sort of cultural zeitgeist and sort of cultural moments. Uh, so it's absolutely crucial to understand the intersection of psychology, neuroscience, what we might think of sort of as the hard sciences of human nature, and, and sort of also bring in uh, elements of sociology and cultural studies and anthropology to really understand this sort of broader cultural context as well. Because, of course, none of this happens in a vacuum. Uh, it's not as if brands will sort of bring in a, a product to a set of consumers and it's a sort of, uh, you know, sanitize completely variable free environment. And it's a sort of, you know, value inspection in terms of, of pure utilitarian judgment. Um, the world is messy. And consumers are not just consumers, they're human beings with other agendas and other interests and other uh, things that are competing for their attention. And uh, this sort of broader, sort of more holistic perspective, I think, is, is very crucial here. Yeah, no, I agree with you. We certainly are contradictory creatures. I'm very fond of the quote from Seren Kierkegaard, who said, out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're, you're in the business of figuring out where the knots in the wood are, uh, in, in at least some part. So um, let's 
maybe you jump into some of the material in the book by chapters in terms of uh, some companies, maybe a company in each case that helps uh, serve as an illustration of the successes or pitfalls of taking things on. Uh, one, as you mentioned, the importance of once you've located or identified and tried to adhere to a company's beliefs, then sculpting the customer experience accordingly. Can you maybe give me an example of that? Yeah, so I think there's this element where uh, brands oftentimes really try and unilaterally dictate their brand image, their brand personality. They have instead of their internal understanding of themselves, a brand constitution. You can chat in uh, a boardroom or a C-suite about, you know, this is our positioning. This is our personality. These are our core set of attributes. Um, but I think what, what brands are, are realizing or what they should realize is that uh, brand image can't be dictated. It's always co-created. Um, and there's a lot of great examples of brands that have come to this in uh, in different ways and been able to really create brand images, brand personalities, which they may not have envisioned in isolation. They did this ultimately in partnership with their core market, their uh, core customer. And one of my favorite examples here is Airbnb. So when we think about Airbnb, uh, we think about its incredible success as a innovation story. So we think about it as a you know classic Silicon Valley disruptor, you know the hotel industry, the hospitality industry. You know now we have a dual-sided marketplace, which which allows people to rent out the properties, and it totally disrupt this disrupts this space. Um, but actually, when we rewind the tape, it's not really an innovation story. So there were two platforms in existence before Airbnb. There was VRBO, which is still around, and which is Airbnb's sort of closest competitor, though they're very far behind. And there was HomeAway, uh, which was founded way back in 1995, when Brian Chesky, the co-founder of Airbnb, was something like 13, 14 years old. Uh, so uh, essentially, this platform, this idea of a dual-sided marketplace allowing uh, people to rent out their properties and have people rent from them, it's not new at all. But Airbnb was the one platform that really went deeper, and they went deeper with the brand itself. So this was uh, the amazing work of Emily Hayward at the Red Antler uh, Agency, which came to Airbnb when it was already sort of established as product market fit, was already in a, in a, in a growth phase, and her branding really put them on the map as a, an incredible player in the hospitality industry. And she uh, utilizes what's called the, uh, the true why test, where uh, you sort of ask consumers, a set of consumers, you do really good market research, really why this platform is important. And so you think about Airbnb, for example, and at sort of a product level, sort of basic value level, uh, you know, it allows you to have more convenient options. It allows you to uh, really be able to experience a place in a different way. And the, the technique here is to probe even deeper and go beyond just these sort of super su superficial uh, ways of, of interacting with consumers, superficial value, and go deeper. So why is it important to uh, not have a uh, sort of a, 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 a phony, fake, put-on experience that you might have at a hotel? People want to have authentic experiences, but not stopping there. Why is it important to have authentic experiences? And you probe deeper and deeper and deeper. Ultimately, you get to death. We're all going to die someday. That's why it's important to have these unique, important, authentic experiences and not feeling like an outsider. And so doing this, this really good, deep market research, ultimately, this led to the realization that people were enjoying this platform, not just because it had better options, not just because it was cheaper than the average hotel, 
but because it really enabled you to belong. And that was a core realization for Airbnb and the uh, the branding team that uh, Emily Hayward was was harnessing there. And this fundamentally became the core brand identity. This is when they uh, really made that the brand promise. This is when they changed their tagline to belong anywhere. And this really became the, the whole ethos of Airbnb. So while the platform was not new, it was in existence dating not nearly a decade before Airbnb came on the scene, uh, it was really the brand that was able to set them apart. And they did that by co-creating this with their consumers. Okay. And, and belonging, of course, is one of those uh, you know central core motivations for people. So that's certainly getting to a, a fundamental of human nature. So I, I really enjoyed, there was a, a brief mention in the book how the original name of Amazon was going to be Relentless, uh, which, which certainly does speak to uh, Jeff Bezos' personality and drive as a business person. Uh, I know we're, we've been talking or you were talking some points in the book about democratizing a brand and the co-creation and really bringing the customer into the fold. What's the challenge these days? And I guess Silicon Valley, thanks to the uh, bank's collapse out there, a momentary collapse out there, has been on our mind. But some of these companies, of course, that were once startups are now massive entities. How does a brand avoid becoming, I guess I'll say, authoritarian almost in its instincts? It's a great question. And this is something that is really uh, of pressing importance to modern brands. So if we're sort of rewinding the tape and sort of looking back at really the, the formation of sort of the modern digital world, which is more and more the modern consumer world, uh, 2007 was really the year in which everything really consolidated. So this was the year that Google launched Gmail. So Google was a, you know, a, a, a fantastic, you know, publicly traded, you know, strong company still in the early 2000s. They launched Gmail. Uh, Facebook, this is when they went beyond the college campus and they, they launched their platform to the broader public. Uh, this is when uh, Twitter uh, established its first 300,000 uh, users. Uh, this was when Amazon launches the Kindle and begins to digitize their, uh, their uh, library. And this is when Apple uh, launches the iPhone. And so each of these innovations in retrospect sort of seemed incremental, maybe with the exception of the iPhone, which was you know, just a game changer from the beginning. But each of those basically moved each of these established tech companies, their good, strong, solvent, profitable companies into a behemoth on the, uh, the stage of the internet. So Amazon ends up owning e-commerce. Google owns access to the internet effectively. So 97% of global search goes through Google search. Uh, you know, Facebook uh, was, was for a very long time like the player in social media. And then Amazon really came to sort of own e-commerce, especially with the launch of their fulfillment centers. And so if a brand is coming out now in the modern era, when there are effectively these large landlords, which are controlling access to the way that most consumers uh, interact with digital goods and services, they have a real choice to make. So it's going to be nice and easy and smooth, for example, to put your products up on Amazon. Um, this is what Amazon does best. They have a, a plethora of sellers and they have so many options. And this is a great way to reach a huge swath of your uh, total addressable market. Uh, but of course, every brand looks the same on Amazon. And of course, Amazon 
doesn't necessarily have your best interests as a brand at heart. They, of course, want their own uh, interests to be at the forefront there. And so when you shout to your Alexa speaker, uh, for example, and you say, hey, order me some batteries, of course, the default is going to be Amazon Basics batteries, not Duracell, not Energizer, not these other competing brands. And so they can act all of these platforms, Amazon being uh, you know, the example we've been discussing most, but all of these platforms enable ease of access to the digital consumer world and are one on the one hand, good partners, but on the other hand, your competitors. And this has obviously uh, earned quite a bit of attention uh, when it comes to regulation and whether these, these big tech companies should be broken up, but also in the meantime, really posing a huge headache and a huge debate for young up-and-coming brands. Um, it's essentially, the, uh, the death spell for any young up-and-coming brand is not to control the entire customer journey. Uh, so if anything goes wrong with Amazon fulfillment, if anything goes wrong on Amazon's UX, it looks bad uh, on your behalf, but that's not anywhere in your control. And you don't control uh, these types of perceptions. So it's certainly a double-edged sword and a lot for modern brands to uh, to debate. Sure. So speaking of maybe a, another double-edged sword, or maybe it's simply an oxymoron, uh, you do have a chapter that goes fairly into depth looking at luxury brands. Uh Maybe a contradiction in terms, is there a down-to-earth luxury brand out there that's probably escaped my attention? It's a great question. I mean, this is, is definitely an area where there's no clear consensus on what defines a luxury brand. Uh, sure, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, they're generally understood to derive the lion's share of their value, not from product utility, but from brand perception. So you can buy, yep. uh, you know, a, a tote bag for $1.50 and that can hold your keys and your wallet and your sunglasses. But a luxury buyer is going to spend $20,000, dollars $50,000 on, let's say, an Hermes or LVMH bag, not because of product utility, but because of all of these incredible, luxurious brand associations that they've worked hard to, uh, to etch in the mind of the uh, consumer. Uh, I will say that uh, to your question specifically, there have been a couple of very interesting brands, which would, if, if not definitively, would certainly trespass into this uh, realm of sort of accessible luxury or sort of down-to-earth luxury. Um, one of the big examples being Supreme, which is sort of the anti-luxury luxury brand, where they sort of pull out all the tricks that luxury brands commonly employ of having limited edition and having, uh, you know, things that are, are really only available to consumers for a very long time, really this controlled scarcity, but they'll do it for things like literally a brick. Like it's, it's an actual brick <laughs> that you would build and it's Supreme branded and uh, people will, you know, line out the door at a limited edition shop that has this brick. And it, it's really sort of a statement of, of a little bit of the ridiculousness of the, uh, of the luxury market. I would say. Uh, well, I, I, I've read a few books that might qualify as a brick, but uh, <laughs> that, that aside, yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just, um, I, I do read a lot and, and some books are wonderful. Your book is very, very good, by the way. Uh, I've read a few others that uh, aren't quite as good, shall we say. Um, another question based on your book, you go into the, the dilemma posed for brands as you go into uh, activism, political activism, and, and especially millennials and Gen Z maybe asking them to take a stand on these issues. Um, there's lots of places you could take that conversation. I'm going to take it a slightly different place, and the answer may be zero, although you were able to give me supreme in the last case for a down-to-earth luxury brand. Are there instances where companies have 
bifurcated or gone from blue to red brand, so to speak, or vice versa, maybe even based on a new CEO or a new cause or a change in the zeitgeist. I mean, it is really hard to navigate these waters these days. Uh, So curious on your perspective. And if it bears on my question itself, that's fine. But wherever you might want to go. This, I think, is is the number one question that keeps up brand managers at night. So we live in a, in a, a very politicized time um, and also a very polarized time. Uh, this is something that, that brands have gotten involved in and, and have at least considered getting involved in. Um, uh, on the one hand, aligning brands just in general are, are in the business of aligning their values, their attributes, their personality with that of their target market. And as the American market as a whole, the sort of American citizenry has become more politicized, uh, of course, brands are naturally going to flock to more political values. Uh, There was recently a a study done which looked at uh, uh, relationships across different lines of identity. And whereas interracial relationships has gone way up in the past 30 years, as America has become uh, much more uh, integrated, um, the sort of last taboo, effectively, even more so than one's religion, is now political lines. There's very few uh, relationships which stand the test of time, very few marriages which are across political lines. It really has become sort of the most insulating layer uh, of human difference. So on the one hand, it's an area where it's a, it's a huge sort of slice of, of one's identity pie in terms of their portfolio of, of interests. Um, and it's, it's just an absolute live wire. So people feel very strongly about their political identity, very strongly about their political views. And there's a lot of examples now of brands that have sort of stepped into this or been pulled into this political debate without really a, a good broad strategy in mind. And frankly, without sort of understand where really they stand on any given political issue. So one of the examples we spoke about in the book was Hallmark. So Hallmark uh, was back in 2019 on one of their channels, they launched an ad uh, for Zola, which is a, a platform that allows, uh, it's, it's a very simple platform. It's like for wedding invitations and, and wedding iconography. And in the commercial, it was very innocuous, very down to earth. Um, it, it depicted a, a homosexual couple on the wedding altar. And most Americans, especially those in uh, progressive states, you know, looked at the ad and thought, you know, this is nothing. I don't even, I don't know what's the controversy about. But there was a very vocal minority. This was from this very conservative group called A Thousand Moms, which wrote in and said, oh, my God. Isn't, isn't it actually a million moms? Might be a million moms. OK, I've, I've, yeah. uh, I've, I've lost them by, uh, you know, an order of magnitude. But yeah, a million, <laughs> a million moms, a million moms. Um, they, uh, they wrote in and they were upset. They said this is, quote, filth. And, you know, Hallmark is, is a good conservative, you know, family channel. I don't want my kids seeing this. You should take this down. And so the Hallmark, you know, considered this, and they ended up taking this down. Uh, and then almost immediately, there was backlash from the other side. And you had uh, progressive groups and uh, pro-gay uh, rights groups writing in and say, oh, my God, how do you cave to this conservative group? This is just, you know, a couple displaying their affection, uh, you know, in a simple commercial. Like, why is this controversial? And the, the CEO of Hallmark actually put the advertisement back. 
And like you can just tell that this is uh, is a clear uh, so the clear winner certainly here was uh, Zola. They got all of this you know free press and you know here we are yeah. Zola even you know four years later. Um, but this was a clear indictment of, of Hallmark's sort of lack of internal understanding of really where they stand. And so I think there is opportunity for brands that enter the, the political arena, for sure. I think there's a lot of pitfalls there. But the number one step is really understanding how them as an organization feel about these politicized issues, because they can't merely be automata dangling on the strings of, of consumer sentiment and political wins. They really have to be their own entity. So however way a brand wants to sort of contort themselves in the political arena, sort of understanding how they as an organization feel first is, is definitely the uh, the first step there. Okay, no, I, I like that answer. That's a, that's a very fair answer. One last place I want to go to before we conclude the interview. In the epilogue, you talk about brands and companies cultivating emotions at scale. Now, you cite yourself that it's easy to do in the case of happiness. Uh, Disney, Coca-Cola, uh, even Hallmark that we were just discussing all pretty readily come to mind. How about brands that maybe have gone after other emotions? Now, I would grant you I can think of maybe, um, you know, for instance, uh, Nike playing off pride, the pride of a successful athlete. I can think of, uh, you know, tire company Michelin using guilt and so much as riding on your tires. But if we go to some of the real core emotions, uh, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, uh, can you think of any brands that really maybe have kind of deliberately played in that space as opposed to the obvious mark of, of aligning with happiness? So I think if we look at any really successful, big global brand, they do naturally constellate around these uh, sort of perennial uh, world-beating emotions and, and personality traits. So uh, happiness is never going to go out of style, right? And so, uh, you know, that's something that if you can successfully align your brand to, you have a pretty good chance of uh, really, you know, tethering yourself to this sort of fundamental uh, of, of the human experience, and you're going to persist with whatever happens to the cultural zeitgeist. Unless something goes really wrong in society, you know, happiness is, is going to be there. Um, happiness is not the only, you know, way to go, of course. I mean, Nike, you know, is really about, you know, come with Nike and we'll, we'll let your dreams come true. Like we're really this sort of like aspirational brands. I think that to a certain extent is, is perennial almost to, uh, to the same extent. Under Armour uh, took a slightly different stance there and they are the, the sort of underdog brand. So, you know, count us out, but we'll show you. And that's a very sort of classic universal tale. And I think that deeply resonates um, in, in, a, in a sort of a perennial way. I think there are brands that have sort of treaded into sort of more niche areas of uh, the emotional experience. And it'll be really interesting to see how they uh, really fare in the future. So one example that comes uh, to mind right now is, is really the, the brand of 2022, which uh, is Liquid Death. Right. So Liquid Death is just a fascinating brand. So if you're looking at a commodity market, like water is like the definition of a commodity market. Right. So it's, you know, waters, 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 water really only differs in terms of the price and the brand, apparently, uh, for where the water comes from. And the founder of uh, Liquid Death, Mike Cesario, comes from the agency side. I think, you know, all of these brands that have come into play in the in the water space. Uh, bottom water space, these are all these sort of lighthearted, sort of pure, like Evian and Poland Springs. That's all sort of basically the same. What if we sort of flipped it on its head and we create like a 
death metal, like a dark humor water brand. And this has been just this runaway success. They actually did brand market fit. They actually tested the resonance of the brand with a, a set of commercials and, and social media content before they actually had the product. Essentially, you said, well, water is water is water is water. Like, you know, unless we do something really wrong with cultivating this water, uh, you know, consumers are going to know what it tastes like. And they're really not going to care about the water, but they are going to care about the brand. And they've been this incredible success story, incredible growth in 2022. They're valued at over a billion dollars now. But the question is, to, to your question, Dan, you know, is this going to stand the test of time? It's not happiness. It's not, you know, make your dreams come true. It's not the underdog. It's death metal and dark humor, and it's a little bit of a you know, a quirky brand that people think is funny for the water industry. Is this enough to really support an enduring, you know, decades long water brand? Um, I mean, the market the market will ultimately decide. So uh, it's it's a little bit more risky. I think if you're trying to establish a, a much longer term brand to go with these sort of more niche emotions. Um, but yeah, again, the uh, the market will decide there. Okay, well, that's a fascinating, unexpected example. I remember way back in the day, there was a polluted industrial canal in, in uh, northern New York State called Love Canal, of all things. So I, I guess I'll look for Love Canal brand next. Um, amazing stuff. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Matt, so much for being on the show. This has been episode 131 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the focus today, using psychology to bond with consumers. I've been fortunate enough to have Matt Johnson as my guest. He is the co-author of Branding That Means Business, How to Build Enduring Bonds Between Brands, Consumers, and Markets. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one that's often cited by Lisa Gransky, who said of branding, a brand is a voice and a product is a souvenir. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.